editor, former online and managing editor, and host of Talk That Talk, award-winning journalist Terrell Chatterbox Emerson. Welcome to it, welcome to it. It is a little after 10.30 on a Saturday morning. This is a new spot for us. But this is your makeup for Thursday. This is your Thursday episode, quote-unquote, of the Talk That Talk radio show. I am your host, Terrell Chatterbox Emerson, in studio, my guy, Matthew Raftery. Matt, what's going on, man? Not much. Like you said, it's a new spot. Uh, I don't know if I like it or dislike it. I mean, I'll tell you this much. I don't think I'm going to like this 1 o'clock game. Like, it, it's one. It's good for a one-off. Don't do this often. <laughs> That's just where I'm at with it. Don't do it often. Uh, but welcome. Welcome to the Talk That Talk radio show. Sorry for the delay uh, this morning, as we typically do at radio. I can get into a little anecdote to start. Uh, for those who do not know, uh, I was dealing with the flu last week. Uh, shout out to Matt, or earlier this week for that matter. Shout out to Matt for uh, holding down the fort while I was gone. Um, just, a, just a moment of transparency here. I'm one of those people that wants things, uh, once I start to feel better, I stop doing the things that make me feel better. <laughs> like, I, I feel better and it's like, okay, cool, back to the grind. Um... I'm pretty sure I woke up dehydrated this morning. I'm almost positive. And I would love to have something tangible like, oh, well, you were drinking last night. But I wasn't. So that just goes to show I started feeling better and I stopped putting as much water in my body as I probably should. So this episode, hopefully I don't need any bathroom breaks. But that's what I had to do this morning. I had to definitely rehydrate, make sure I was rehydrated. Uh, but also, obviously, in, in dealing with COVID earlier this year, uh, little fevers, uh, or not fevers, little um, flus, like I had this this past week. Uh, it re aggravates my asthma, and I had my asthma under control until I had COVID in May, and it really took a toll on my lungs. So I don't expect this to be obviously the 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 norm when it comes to this show, but. Whenever things like that do present themselves, obviously, I appreciate you guys for uh, understanding that I kind of have to react in the moment. So uh, kind of what, what happened this morning, I woke up, I wasn't necessarily feeling super hydrated, but I was wheezing. So I had to hop on the machine. And if you guys know anything about that, the nebulizer, the nebulizer dries you out a little bit more. So was kind of in an awkward place. I was like, well, damn, do I drink while I'm doing it? But long story a little less long, that's what stopped um, the early... 10 o'clock spot this morning, but we're here for 10.30. We got some quick hits to get to. We got some local news to get to. We got a game to cover at 1.30 from the MGM Grand Garden Arena as part of the oh, excuse me, as part of, of as part of the Las Vegas Clash. I dare you to say part of the Las Vegas Clash three times fast. I ain't doing it. That's impossible. Um, <laughs> I do have my mom's tip in. Let's see what my mom sent this. Uh, it's, something on, it's something on being a hero. I like this one. This was from Bob Riley. Hard times don't create heroes. It is during the hard times when the hero within us is revealed. I'll read that one more time from Bob Riley. Hard times don't create heroes. It is during the hard times when the hero within us is revealed. Shout out to my mom for that tip in. Uh, my dad sent me a tip in as well. It's football related. We'll get to that when, when uh, the opportunity presents itself. Uh, we're going to start with some quick hits. We'll see how long it takes us to get through these. Pardon. Uh, you guys, if you listen to the show, you guys probably know where we're starting. And it shouldn't be much of a shock. 
But after 294 days, on Thursday, Brittany Griner was released from a Russian penal colony and returned to the U.S. Uh, Matt, I'll let you go ahead and start this one. So, I think, for one, I mean, I'll say this, I was a little surprised it was this soon. Um, it, it truly felt like BG was was going to be in it for the long haul. Um, there were even reports that she had cut her hair, and that kind of indicated that, she, I think even in her mind, she felt like, all right, I'm going to be here for a while. And there, sure, there's people that are upset about the, the prisoner swap and the value, right? Kind of like we do with sports trades. We always try to evaluate, oh, well, who got a great deal and who got robbed in the deal? A lot of people felt like the U.S. got robbed, but, you know, I, I understand the, the vantage point of we still have, you know, prisoners over there that we would like to return home, you know, Paul Whelan being kind of at the top of that list. But from all the reports that I saw with people with inside you know, kind of inside information, but really good information on the deal itself. They said, this was the only one. It was this or nothing. And I'm so glad you said that because everybody, Nick Wright went off recently about it. Um, talking about Paul Whelan, Russia didn't negotiate for Paul Whelan. Paul Whelan, Paul Whelan in Russia's eyes was never. He was never on the table. No. And, and if he was on the table, Russia wanted an excess of of prisoners being returned to them and the US wasn't going to do that. Right. And I mean in itself it's bad enough that obviously you see who Russia's getting back in return and you you see their their past and their history and it's not great, but at the same time I do applaud you know the White House administration for realizing that this may be our only deal on the table and we'd rather walk away with something than nothing. And at the end of the day, it, it's good to have BG home. And um, I believe she uh, flew to San Antonio for medical observations and uh, maybe even some nutrition observations. I, I'm pretty sure. But, um, mm. you know, I, I, I think her returning home now I mean, as far as her, her playing career, you would hope that she would be able to play next season. Um, it's probably going to take her, you know, a few months to get back into the the swing of being a professional basketball player. But it's going to take Brittany Griner a couple of months to get used to being free again. I think so. And I do think that if BG is able to play this year, which I, I – I'll be I'll be cautiously optimistic about it. I think she will play this year. She may miss a few games here and there. I don't expect it to be the start of the year for sure. Yeah, she might miss the start of the year, but I do think at some point we're going to be talking about BG being back on the basketball court just because I feel like that's that's who she is. Like she's a competitor at heart. She she wants to be back on the court, and um, you know, I mean, you look at a, a team like Phoenix and. They may not have been great last year, but the thing that I always walked away with from Phoenix was they have a lot of promise and they have a lot of potential. You look at Phoenix last year, and let's just call a spade a spade. Phoenix stunk last year without BG. They did. You add BG to what they had last year, 
that's a contender. That's that, that's a title contender. And that's the importance of Brittany Griner. I think anybody on that team will tell you, yeah, the way that this team is made up, we need an anchor down low. And she wasn't there all of last year. So I think in terms of basketball, X's and O's, I think we we know, which is another reason why I believe she'll play this year, because I do believe that, like you said before, it's in her nature. It's, it's, it's in her uh, makeup. Um, I will say that <clears throat> after this experience, I am interested to see how many other athletes, uh, WNBA athletes specifically, uh, go to Russia in the offseason. Um, I'm interested to see Brittany Griner's first interview. I don't think it's coming anytime soon. I don't think it will come before the new year. Maybe second week into the new year. Maybe. Maybe. Um, I, I think Brittany Griner is going to take a lot of time with family as she should. And I don't think any of us have a firm grasp of what she dealt with. And we're not going to have a full grasp of that until she speaks. Yeah. And, I mean, look, I think Stephen A. said it the other day that games were played. There's no doubt about this. Like, Vladimir Putin understood exactly what he was doing with the deal that he was proposing, which obviously was was, was accepted. He knew what he was getting in return. He's not a, he's not stupid. He he wasn't born yesterday. Um, and to a degree, I think the White House understood that as well. I think the the White House they understood at a certain point. Is this the fairest deal on the table? No, I don't think it is. Does Vladimir Putin also play very fair? No, he doesn't. So at at the end of the day, I I'm glad they took a deal because the White House could have been very stubborn and said if it, if Paul Whelan's not in the deal, we're not doing it at all. Period, which would have led to nobody coming home. And so sometimes you know the old saying comes true: you got to take what you can get. And in this case, it was if there was any chance that. BG was going to be able to come home no matter how lopsided it may have looked you have to take it at th- or you have to definitely consider it and most likely take that deal and <clears throat> pardon uh, I, I kind of mentioned a little bit ago with Nick Wright uh, that Nick Wright had talked about it and Nick Wright <laughs> he he I see why he gets under some people's skin in certain moments uh, I like Nick Wright I like Nick Wright a lot but um there's an authenticity that I feel like I get from him. And what I like about Nick Wright's uh, growth in this business is so many more things with Nick Wright now have become conversational. And it sounds like Nick is just talking to you like a friend. And I, I completely felt his his sentiment of he thought on Thursday morning that it would be at the very least unified praise that the deal got done. This is with all due respect to Paul Whelan. There were people who, for political reasons or otherwise, 
wanted to say, well, what happened to Paul Whalen? With all due respect to Paul Whalen, I think half of the people that I was asking where he was on Thursday didn't know his name until Brittany Griner was caught in prison or was caught in Russia. This situation alone has highlighted Paul Whalen's situation. So, like Nick said, in a moment where we can all be happy, even for a moment, and say at least she's coming home, people still tried to find something negative in the situation. Um, Again, we have a couple of quick hits to get through, so don't want to make it seem like we're rushing through these, but we do want to obviously give these equal amount of time. Uh, the next one is actually about Grant Wall, uh, American soccer journalist, American journalist uh, who died while covering the World Cup in Qatar. Uh, I'm going to be honest, this this happened last night, and you guys know how I feel about uh, with as much as we talk here at this media company, whether it's the podcast, whether it's live tweeting, whether it's uh, stories, whether it's the radio show, whatever the case may be, whether it's your show back and forth. Uh we run the risk of obviously saying things that uh, can have repercussions and penalties and things of that nature. And we'll see what happens in terms of this one. But this story does not sit well with me. Did you hear about Grant Wall? I did. I was, I think I saw it come across my feed right before uh, the Golden Knights game last night. Um,. I had a conversation with one of my friends in the industry, and this was months ago. Hell, maybe a couple years ago or a year ago, rather. And they were telling they they talked about covering uh, the Olympics. And they said, when you cover the Olympics. It doesn't matter what organization you're a part of in the U.S., once you're outside of the U.S., none of it matters. And while their experience was up and down, I'll say, they gave me a lot of insight on, well, once you get there, there's pretty much like this Olympic village. You get outside that Olympic village, you're on your own. And I say that to say that in those other countries, you're at that country's whim. And this is where I feel like my my commentary gets a little dangerous, but... I challenge any and everyone to go to Grant Wall's Twitter and just scroll his timeline. While he was out there covering the World Cup, Grant also did stories on migrant workers, migrant workers, excuse me, in Qatar. He was highlighting some of the migrant workers that would die in the field of work. And it didn't matter. Grant Wall was in another country shedding light 
on stories that needed to be told. To know that less than a month ago, I believe on November 21st, Grant Wall was kicked out of uh, a soccer match in Qatar for wearing a pride shirt. Matt, I don't know how many times you've taken uh, trips and like gone to resorts and things of that nature, but there are certain people that tell you, oh, if you go somewhere and you, you're paying for something all-inclusive and you're at the resort, don't drink anything outside of the resort, not even water. If you're one of those people who believe anything, who believes anything that, uh, or what, uh, Grand Wall's brother, I believe his name is Eric. I don't want to be wrong about that, but I believe it's Eric Wall. Uh, if you believe anything like that, he says that his brother, who's, who was 48 years old at the time of his passing, was healthy and had recently told his brother that he was beginning to get death threats in Qatar. If you're a person who believes that, we have not heard the the last of this story. The scary part is it didn't happen on U.S. soil. So how do we get those answers? I'm not really sure. I will say rest in peace to Grant Wall. I have a sincere passion for people who... feel tasked with the job of giving it to you straight. And from everything on that timeline, no matter whose feathers it may have ruffled, that's what Grant was about until the day he checked out of here. Uh, as I said before, rest in peace to Grant Wall. Um, just prayers and condolences to his fans, his audience, his family, uh, his loved ones. Yeah. You got something? I do think it's, I'll say rather interesting that these are the circumstances around it that, like you said, he's not currently in the United States and that, quite frankly, we may not have answers like ever. Like, Qatar may just never give those answers up. Um, and really, they could probably just cite that, well, it was on our country's soil. That's that's our business. Um, and leave it at that. I also would say that I don't rule out foul play at all. I think from everything that was said, Grant seemed to be a perfectly healthy United States citizen covering the World Cup. And then all of a sudden... He's checked out like that. Leads me to believe that something went on behind the scenes. Maybe he had something to eat. Maybe he had something to drink. I don't know what the circumstances would have been, but something definitely happened to get Grant Wall to where, obviously, he is no longer with us now. But I, I do think, to a degree, like like you said, 
every article, every take, every podcast, every radio show, you know, you could run the risk of saying something that may not land well with others. The best way to support that is, you know, through interviews and quotes. And that's what I always try and, you know, tell people that are getting into it. Just say what you want to say, but be calculated about it. And, you know, people will have a lot more respect if you, you know, go and do the work behind the scenes, whether that's an interview. Um, if the Golden Knights don't have a great game, I'll probably say they didn't have that great of a game in different ways, along with, you know, maybe Bruce Cassidy threw something in about that, well, we didn't play well here. Or Those maybe are gonna prove it. Or maybe Mark Stone will say, well, we didn't play well in this phase of the game. To where it's not just me telling you they didn't play well. There's evidence behind it to support it. And everything that you said is absolutely right. And, and absolutely uh, one of the reasons why when news breaks here on the show, we may mention it. But we usually reserve, try to reserve uh, some of our heavier takes until after the fact. Um, this final one. I'll be honest, quick hits, we're supposed to do like five minutes or less. I'm good on giving this topic a full five minutes. Why did you guys need to hear <laughs> from a U.S. congressional house that Dan Snyder participated in a toxic environment with the Washington football team? Washington Commanders now. Ta-da. They just said the quiet part that nobody was talking about. What do we, what do we, what is the news here? I, I don't, you know what's funny? I wrote this down. The only reason why I wrote this down is because I wrote down the Sean Taylor uh, stat. I don't even want to call it a statue. The Sean Taylor uh, memorial a couple of weeks ago, and I wrote it down in my notes. And as the show progressed, I never even talked about it because all it was going to do was frustrate me. Dan Snyder needs to sell the Washington Commanders. Then that's just where I'm at with it. That Sean Taylor quote unquote memorial. Should have been the final straw. That was a bad memorial. Like that was that was. I was gonna say borderline disrespectful. No, that was disrespectful to Sean Taylor. The Fertitta Football Complex has better mannequins than that. Yeah. I don't know where they found those mannequins. The team store. That's what you have in the team store. Fam, I, uh, you know what, and this is, you know what, and now that I'm in the mood, let's just talk. I think the Washington fan base, even though the fan base obviously does what they're supposed to do in terms of recognizing Sean Taylor. However, let's just call a spade a spade. The Washington fan base the the franchise as a whole and the Snyder family should be extremely appreciative that Sean Taylor's family is so graceful. They have played with that man's name a little bit too much. I'll say it again. Dan Snyder and his family should be extremely appreciative that Sean Taylor's family is so graceful because they've had plenty of opportunities and probably moments where they should have done it where they probably should have told Dan Snyder to go to hell. 
And I'm sure that they feel like it's a disservice by telling Dan Snyder to not touch Sean Taylor or his name anymore because of what he did for the franchise. I'm not telling the family that they're wrong by no means, but if the family was to come out at any point and say, stop touching his legacy, they have every right to do so. I don't think you could fumble a ball as an owner as many times as Dan Snyder has. I do think I do think it could open the door up for Jeff Bezos. As for, well, I don't know who's gonna own the team. Uh, Jeff Bezos is gonna own the team, so I'm telling you, he might. He might. Oh, well, what's, well, what's the definition of soon? I give him ten years. Let me say that. Jeff Bezos will tell you ten minutes. He'd be like, "Hang on, I gotta find my checkbook real quick. How much are we talking?" Okay. I mean, hell, the way Thursday night football looking, you gotta spend some money elsewhere. Yeah. Um, I do wonder if this is gonna open up a Pandora's box for other owners in the league to maybe not to the degree that Dan Snyder did, but there may be other owners in the league that kind of look at their organization and maybe some of the things that go on with it. Um, and maybe some of the, you know, management's conduct and whatnot, they may take a second look and go, Dan Snyder's going to probably not have a football team here before long we got to clean up our act before they catch on to us. I think, pardon, what's, what's, what damages that is how long it took. And I think what's so interesting was we saw that change in the NBA when the Donald Sterling thing happened because the Clippers reacted. Then the league had no choice to react. Then Adam Silver said, well, I have to, I have to, lay, the, to lay the law down at some point. Those three things happened relatively quickly. When was the first time the red flag was raised about Dan Snyder? Feels like years ago. These NFL owners are not worried about Dan Snyder. Because if that if this case is indicative of what they're gonna have to deal with if they were to do something like this six, seven, eight, nine, ten year minimum, they'll be fine. I, I don't think there's anybody more cocky than an NFL owner. <laughs> it would be interesting to get other owners' take on Dan Snyder, like a Mark Davis or a Jerry Jones. That would be amazing. I don't think they would go on record. No, you. I don't. No, they they're smart enough not to go on record. But I would applaud the first person that asked Mark Davis about Dan Snyder. Does Mark even talk? I think if Mark understood that none of it was being recorded and it was just a casual conversation. He might give it up. He might let you in a little bit, yeah. <laughs> Mark's funny. Uh, <clears throat> pardon. Let, let's hop into some uh, local news here in Vegas. We're going to talk basketball. We're going to slowly transition, into, and then we're going to end the show with some football. Uh, we're going to slowly transition into hockey, by the way. Uh, so let's start with some basketball. We're going to start in the collegiate ranks, and we're going to start with the women because I said so. Um, did you watch this last game? No. So, had a conversation with Roman Owen after this most recent victory for UNLV where they beat Hawaii at Hilo 77 to 74. They had to win this fourth quarter by 11 points to get this victory. 
over a Division II school. <clears throat> Pardon. For the second straight game, I watched UNLV women's basketball have a first half that I, I told Lindy after the uh, initial game on the road trip. There's my phone. On the initial game on the road trip that uh, I've been covering the team for maybe four or five years. She's only been here for this is her third year. And I told her, yes, it's the worst first half that I've seen her group play. But what I saw prior to this uh, Hawaii Hilo game at Pacific was the worst first half that I had ever seen from UNLV women's basketball. And I asked her, was that kind of the same thing that she saw from her vantage point? And she said that she typically likes to remember the good times. She said, but she cannot remember a half where the team looked that bad. And she said that she told them at halftime, I mean, what's up? <laughs> I mean, what what is it at this point? Eerily similar that even though Lindy was not on the road trip with the team at Hilo, uh, she will be back with them. She's probably with them right now, as a matter of fact. Uh, she will be back on the bench tomorrow against Hawaii. But kind of a, a similar conversation with Roman. Pardon. Uh, the, uh, during this game, I asked Roman, I said, well, we talked about this group's depth. We talked about this group, uh, where, they, where they were last year, their experience, right? And... I asked him flat out. I said, did you ever think that this team would not only play a first half like they did against Pacific, but put together back-to-back -back first halves like this? And as you could expect, Roman's, Roman's answer was the only way that we expect Roman's answer to be. He reiterated everything that we said. He said, I never would have thought that we played a first half like this in back-to-back -back games. I find it interesting that his approach at halftime was a little similar to Lindy's. Kind of looked at the team and said, what's up? <laughs> what's going on? It's great to see the team respond when, when, they're, when they're challenged. However, we talked about it last year, right? These slow starts can't keep happening. No, they definitely can't. And we said it before the Pacific game. We were going to learn a lot by the by the time the Oklahoma State game was done. By the time this team got done with their four-game road trip, we would know a lot about this team. I didn't necessarily watch the Pacific game outside of some updates. The updates I got, though, were not great. They were, like, UNLV starting, like, 2 of 18 or something like that in the first half. Yeah, it was bad. Um, Which... I mean, at, at the D1 level, starts to become unexcusable, but in a sense, they are kind of playing in an away gym. So maybe that has something has to do with a slow shooting start. Maybe you're not used to those confines. It is the first road game for them uh, of the season. So, I mean, yeah, it's a little bit of a shock. Um, especially a team that played them well, too, over the last two years. Yeah, and, and it's not a slouch of a team. It's not a team that you can roll on in and... You could play, you you know, maybe play a B minus game, and you still walk away with a 10, 15 point win. But I think, you know, you couple that with it being their first road game in what this, this of the year. Was, yeah, it was the first game of the year after having like seven at home in yep. a row. So I, I think, you know, Wendy said, you know, we're we're 
we feel like we're pretty good, but at the same time, it is time for us to take our show on the road. I think the team got a lot a, a more of an eye opener after that Pacific game, realizing that oh, we're not just going to roll in and and beat everybody out the gym by twenty every game. Desi ended up being the anchor, obviously, toward the end of the game against Hawaii at Hilo. She ended up finishing with a game-high 24 points on 9 of 17 shooting, including 9 rebounds. However, the biggest stat line of the night came from Melissa Brown in her first start of the year, 18 points, 13 rebounds, 7 of 12 from the field. Uh, I talked to Roman a little bit after the game, and I was just talking about – Again, the depth of this team and when things were going bad against Pacific, Jasmine Lott, freshman guard, uh, was kind of the catalyst to get the team back in it. I believe she had a couple of threes that cut the deficit to, to nine at one point. And six or the five, the other one. Uh, but she had a couple of, bi- of, of big moments and Alyssa Brown did the exact same thing in this one. And Roman Owen kind of alluded to the fact that Lindy allows – for everybody to be important in this uh, program. And she said, or he said that uh, her ability to make everybody feel important in the program and necessary in the program allows for big moments like that. Now, keep in mind, Alyssa Brown started for NECA Obiazer, so it it provided uh, a different spark, and I'm sure it also gave her an added edge knowing that she was going to probably play north of 28 minutes. She ended up playing 29 uh, so to see her reward the team with 18 points and 13 rebounds, her first career collegiate triple-double, uh, was obviously a big moment for a couple of different reasons. Uh, but they are 8-1 this season. Again, they are back on the road. Well, they're still on the road, rather. They're still in Hawaii. They're taking on the Rambo Wahine tomorrow at 4 p.m. Again, head coach Lindy LaRock will be back on the bench for the Lady Rebels. Now, did A.B. start for NECA? That's a coach's decision, or was it something with NECA? NECA didn't play at all. Okay. So that um, – I ended up – obviously the story was in and everything, but that is a goal today to try to figure out uh, if there was a reason why NECA didn't play. We know that there's a lot going on in terms of sickness. You talked about it before. Alyssa Durazo Frescas missed, missed the game as well. Maybe similar. I don't want to go ahead and speculate, but this, this is me speculating. Uh, I don't know anything for a fact. This is literally me throwing something at a wall and seeing if it'll stick, uh, considering that – when I did speak to Lindy after the Pacific game, I believe it was, um, I was telling her I was getting over a cold. And she said, you and everybody else. So this program has obviously been hit with the flu bug as well. Um, what has this men's team been hit with? Apparently greatness. Like, they can't they, – they don't know what losing is, apparently. I don't know if they're going to figure it out anytime soon either because they had Hawaii in the building – not the Thomas and Mac, but they had them at the Dollar Loan Center this past week, and they came away with a 15-point lead. Matt, I looked up at one point at this first half. I hope it was the first half. And points off turnovers was 17-3 to in favor of UNLV. And we talked about it earlier this year. If this team is able to score off of the turnovers that they force, now we can start having those conversations that you guys wanted to have about UNLV football. We can start having them about UNLV basketball. Because we talked about their offensive, what we expect to have in terms of offensive uh, inconsistency. 
none of it matters if you're getting free runs at the basket. Kind of hard to miss layups when you're getting them off of constant turnovers. Uh, but eight straight points from Luis Rodriguez ended up being a difference on the way to a 77-62 win for UNLV. Luis Rodriguez led all scores with 18 points on six. What is going on with me? That's all that water. On six of 14 from the field, he added seven rebounds. Does it bother you that he had no assists? Nah. It, this is going to sound crazy. It doesn't bother me. It's an eyesore. It doesn't bother me because it's not like, oh, well, I didn't see him pass the ball too much before looking at the stat sheet. But looking at the stat sheet, you would want your wing, who was that active on both ends, to obviously probably pass the ball a little bit more. But nevertheless, that could be me just nitpicking. Uh, beautiful game from Lou, right? Came down, hit a three when the team needed it most. Hawaii re- re- returned the favor. Lou comes down, he hits another one, he gets a steal, he gets a dunk. That eight-point swing, or eight-point uh, stretch, by him alone, A, I think it will give him the confidence that he needs for the rest of the season. And B, I got to be honest, this team has provided an energy around it that even if Luis Rodriguez didn't score those eight straight points, you almost felt like it was coming from somewhere. Um, and then the last thing that I'll say while you can go ahead and take over is uh, <clears throat> about Luis Rodriguez is he, this last game, San Diego, he became the fourth leading scorer for this program, the fourth different leading scorer for this program through the first eight games. I feel like that should be talked about more as well. What you got? I mean, for for starters, the team's nine and zero. Yeah, first time, <laughs> first time I believe in eleven 12, years, right? Eleven or twelve years, yeah. That this team is nine and zero. I said it earlier in the year. This may be the best head coach UNLV's had since, mm, yeah, Lon Kruger, when Kevin's dad, ironically enough, was the head coach, and I feel, and really, a lot of UNLV fans would probably feel a certain way. This past Monday, when they looked at the AP pool and they said, "Now, why did UNLV only get 14 votes for the AP top 25 when they're one of 10 teams in the entire country that are undefeated? Out of 358 college basketball teams, they are one of 10 that have not lost this season." 12 years. You're right. 12 years. 2012-11 was or 2010-11 was the last time that this team was 9-0. I think they started the season 9-0 and they ended up losing to Louisville. And we we talked about it when this team finds some consistency on the offensive end of the, of the floor. They're going to be a contender for the Mountain West this year. I don't think regular season Mountain West champs is out of the question for this UNLV team. I don't even think tournament champions is quite frankly out of the question for this UNLV team because they've proven that they can play with anybody in the country. They're not, you know, five, four or five years ago UNLV where they would just kind of be happy to be there if they were playing a Duke or playing a ranked team. Um, but you would obviously see the difference in talent level. I think UNLV has bought in tremendously on the defensive side of the ball. And similarly to kind of what Lindy was talking about with some of the Lady Rebels' early, or earlier struggles with defense and kind of generate offense, the more you can take those turnovers and convert them to points – 
the more games you're going to win. Hmm. The more easier it's going to come on the offensive end of the floor. And, I mean, slowly but surely, I mean, we've seen these final scores where UNLV's offense is coming to life. You can see there's there's something there now where they're not just struggling to get to 60 every night. They're they're in the 70s and 80s, and if you're like Pacific, it's 120-something. But um, may, probably definitely an outlier game for sure. But You think. <laughs> you know, I, I think now we're starting to move into we could probably pencil in 70 for UNLV on offense. And if their defense plays anything like they're capable of, we know they're not giving up 70. They're probably giving up maybe 60, 55, somewhere in there. I mean, it's funny how you you, you said that this particular time because there was a wire-to-wire win for UNLV for the running Rebels. Uh, they got this one again. I'll go ahead and give you guys the final score, 77-62. So it kind of gives you an idea as to what Matt is talking about. Uh, F.A. Aboogity was at the game on uh, – what day was that? Wednesday. Wednesday, thank you. On Wednesday. And uh, I made it a point to ask. I said, F.A., I'm pretty sure you're going to be there on Saturday, right? He said, oh, you know, bro, I'm definitely going to be there. He said, I got to watch Washington State. So, F.A. Aboogity will be there. You will be there. I will be there. The MGM Grand Garden Arena, your favorite place in the world, right? I can't wait to smell these halls, bro. I'm going to say this. <laughs> and it's not its not about the MGM Grand, I promise. I All promise. right, we'll see. Um, Why do I have a problem with UNLV Athletics? I mean, I naturally. I had an answer. This is why I tell. Why... Nope. I see you're trying to get me in trouble. I see what's happening. What's up? What would you like to know about UNLV athletics? Why did nobody? Well, a. Why did nobody know that they were giving out limited student tickets? And by limited, I mean I probably could count on like, yeah, my two hands, how many tickets they gave out? Because I asked everybody. I said. So student tickets, like they they go into the game, like we we can have students there. I mean, teams nine to know it's the perfect time. It's a Saturday at one thirty. Arena's neutral right, site. A neutral site. Arena's right down the road from campus. And a lot of them are like, yeah, this was very hush hush. Nobody knew about it, and they had a very limited amount. And so I, when I hear that, all I can say is, come Sunday or Monday, whenever it is. I don't want to hear a peep from UNLV that they didn't have students at the game. That Because that's been the biggest complaint. We don't have students at our games. You know, students don't like coming to the basketball game. If you don't offer, it's kind of hard to get them to come to the game to start with. You know, I, I think as a school, when you understand that your team is 9-0 and and you're going to a neutral site and you're playing an opponent that probably will travel fairly well, I would imagine, in Washington State. Hell yeah. You don't want to be the minority in, in a building that's two miles away from your campus. Like, at a certain point, and I, I get like this was a, you know, from everything I was told, this isn't like a UNLV sanctioned event. This is separate. Like, even the season ticket holders had to buy tickets separately for this game, it wasn't included in their package which we can fix that as well. Um, I mean, you can, you can put together seating charts and find comparable seats for the season ticket holders, my opinion. If they're going to pay that much, what's an extra game to it? Right. And One of the bigger games, too, being a Pac-12 school. Yeah, and so, <clears throat> I mean, typically it hasn't been too much of a problem as far as these neutral site games, as far as getting 
you know, tickets to students, but it felt like nobody was really saying anything in this game and it wasn't really promoted. And then it came out that like, it was a very like finite limited amount that were even given out. I, I again, I, I always say it like if, if you're not going to provide something, you can't be mad with the result. You text me and asked me about uh, the audience at the Dollar Loan Center on Wednesday night. What did I tell you? There wasn't a lot of students. <laughs> to UNLV's credit, it was packed. Wasn't a lot of students there, though. That's got to change. I mean, I'm alum of this campus. So, both of us. Uh Whenever I'm not covering a game, I go support teams on campus. That's just the way that I am. Uh, I've built friendships with these with these a lot of these players. I've uh, had classes with these players, uh, which is shout out to Salim Dweck for doing that story on Charles Williams because I told him, Duna and I are too close. <laughs> we've had personal conversations with Chuck. We've had classes with Chuck. We've done projects with Chuck. We've done just a multitude of things that. Uh, we want to keep our credibility obviously intact. Um, I say all of that to say we still have ties to this campus, right, and things of that nature. And I think it's important to note that while it's necessary to have alumni members who graduated in the early 2000s, the mid-2000s, uh, 2000, the early 2010s. Nothing is more invigorating than having the actual student body in the building. We talk about it at UNLV football games all the time. Which, by the way, you want to know another reason why I know that the Raiders don't want us there? Hmm. If UNLV ever beats a ranked team, how are the students supposed to get from that 12-foot drop? Oh, no, there's, they, they definitely going to. Yeah, they gonna try, but it ain't gonna end well. That's not gonna be a good look. No, <laughs> if UNLV ever beats a ranked team, they're gonna have to file everybody to UNLV sideline and get them down them stairs, which is gonna be even worse. The Raiders don't want to stay. Oh man, <clears throat> let's talk about the team that plays. Oh, before I do that, I gotta shout out Justin Webster, three for four on the night, all of them threes. 13 points, playing his former guys in the Rainbow Warriors. Uh, I liked his his approach after the game. Andy said, was there any trash talk coming from um, his former teammates? And Justin said he let the guys know as soon as he touched the court, don't talk to me. I'll talk to you guys after the game. You know for a fact I like that. <laughs> like, I like – because at the end of the day, I think people are too uncomfortable with being uncomfortable. Fam – I'm sure some of those teammates probably looked at him and was like, damn, he mad like that? No, I'm not mad. We have 40 minutes to do this thing called basketball. We will be friends for the other 40 years afterwards. Don't talk to me for these 40 minutes. It's fine. <laughs> we'll be fine. Um, <clears throat> so I, I liked his approach, and, and clearly whatever the mental makeup was for that moment, it worked because it led to him scoring 13 points and and continuing to work his way out of a one for 11 shooting stretch to start the year.
Now we get to some stuff that you covered. I was supposed to be at this game on Tuesday. It's Tuesday, right? Yeah. Tuesday. This tells you I had the flu. I don't know what none of these days are. Um, supposed to be at the game on Tuesday. Told you if I actually text Dermonte as well. So I text D and I hit, I hit him and I was like, um, COVID test was negative. Had to be just the flu. If I could get my asthma together, I'll be there tonight. My nebulizer, in case you guys are wondering, I uh, call it I call it my machine. I've done this since I was a kid. <clears throat> I told Matt, I said, my machine should be coming. As soon as FedEx drops it off, I'm going to take my uh, treatment. I'm headed down. FedEx didn't bring it. <laughs> so I was like, I don't really want to hit this cold weather and then have to bundle up and then be sweating like hell under it. So I'm going to just stay home. I stay at home. You and I text each other pretty much the entire game, which, by the way, I thought was pretty impressive because you were live tweeting and you've seen me live tweet before. I don't answer my phone. <laughs> so that was pretty impressive, by the way. You should give yourself kudos for that. But um, we watched uh, Scottie Pippen Jr. Let's just call a spade a spade. I watched Scottie Pippen Jr. I'm not going to say it's one of the greatest game winners I've ever seen, but one of the better game winners from this season that I will say. And I'll say that NBA-wise and NBA G League-wise, mainly because Scottie got rocked. <laughs> Eric hit him. Let's just call a spade a spade. Eric hit him. He hung in the air. He got the basket to go. It was an Elam ending. Uh, not gonna lie. If it if it was for a home for the home team, obviously it would have been more ecstatic. But it was definitely a moment that was worth capturing. But as a person at the game, you know the play right before that is where the storyline was. How were the Lakers even in that position? I think if you asked a lot of people on the ignite, they would point to maybe a handful of people on the court, and none of them were players. I can tell you that much. Um. It was a really. I, I, at the end of the game, I felt bad for the ignite, because that may have been the worst way I've seen them lose a basketball game all year, and they've done a lot of it. So I mean, they're like three, what three and eleven, right? Three and eleven, seven games. So lose. they've had eleven games. They have not won. This may have been the worst of them, and I say that to say. They lost the game really through no fault of their own. It was a factor that wasn't even in their control. And we talk about all the time, especially in the Mountain West, we need to open up an investigation at some point. <laughs> like, we, we got to get to the bottom of this. I'm with you. We may want to open up investigation 1A on some of these refs. I, I think Jason Hart agrees with you. There's a reason Jason Hart did not take post-game media after this one, and I don't blame him one bit. I understood it completely. We talked about it before he even came out, too, and we, we even kind of tried to figure it out and was like, do you think somebody's getting fined today? And we were pretty convinced somebody was going to get fined. And then you were told that there was no media. Yeah, no, Jason, It explains a lot. Because Jason, Jason probably knew. If I go to that podium, I'm going to say something crazy and I'm going to get fined. Not only am I going to say something crazy, I'm leading with it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm starting with it. So let all your questions be about this. Um, But what I mean happened was it's a tie game, 113. They're playing to 114. That's the target score. So yes, sir. essentially the next basket wins. It's like, you know, playground ball. And the Ignite had the ball. 
So I'm thinking, okay, just get a good offensive possession. You can win the game with a good look. They're going, they're going. It almost sounded like an inadvertent whistle. I thought something was wrong for a sec. I was because the whistle came out of nowhere. That's what it looked like on the broadcast as well. And one of the officials turns to the score table and says, we have a shot clock violation. Now, keep in mind, there's still nine or ten seconds left on the shot clock. So they were nowhere near the shot clock expiring. And the reasoning they ruled it a shot clock violation was because the shot clock wasn't set for overtime rules, apparently, on that possession. So after a miss uh, or, or a regain possession, pardon, it resets to 14. Right. It's <laughs> whoever the clock operator was reset it to 24. Here's my, I'm sure your, and I'm also sure the Ignite's issue with that. The Ignite took a timeout prior to. So they're getting out of the timeout, running their set with 24 seconds on the shot clock. What were the referees doing during the timeout? At the end of the day, I count it to, as a referee, the shot clock is one of your responsibilities. And I felt the way they handled it was probably the worst they could have handled it. Because I understand that there's a clock error that happens. But then at a certain point, you have to look at that and go, at that instance, when they finally realized it, they should have let it go because it's too late. Like, you can't reset it to 14. You're better off just letting the eight or nine seconds play out. Because the thing is, nobody else in the building no. knew. Nobody else knew or recognized it. Nobody on South Bay rec- recognized it. Nobody on the Ignite recognized it. They just played it as is. The only three people in the building that knew were the ones in the stripes. And so... <clears throat> At that point, I would have been much rather okay with them just letting the play play out. And if the Ignite miss, they miss. And if you know South Bay makes it, they make it. So be it. It happens. And the problem I have was the referees blatantly affected the outcome of that game. I think, <clears throat> pardon, I'm even cool with you might not like this. We've seen it before, and I think what's so interesting is <clears throat> we see it in, in football a lot, right? Where sometimes a player will be getting ready to start, and you'll see a referee blow it dead, and a referee will be like, please reset the game clock too. Because even though you may be mad that I killed this play, you're going to appreciate the fact that I'm killing this play because we're ensuring that something was done right before it, prior to it. I'm not mad if they stop. Jason Hart is probably pissed because I showed my play. I'm sorry, Jason. I'm about two seconds from calling a a shot clock violation on you with nine seconds left. You're going to appreciate the fact that I'm going to start this play over. That was the opportunity that I feel like was missed. And as you said before, I think what what really set Jason and, and, and the guys off was... The whistle blows. Cameron Young has the ball, I believe. He's dribbling. He looks up at the clock, and it's nine seconds left. And the referee gives a signal of a shot clock violation. Cam kind of looked around the court and looked up at the clock like, okay, maybe I'm going crazy, but that has time left. 
the entire bench is kind of looking at the ref like, okay, like there's an explanation somewhere. I didn't see an immediate explanation. I'm not sure if Jason got one until after the game. I mean, the the most he probably got was that it wasn't a set to 14 after a missed shot, and it was reset to 24 instead, which I'm okay with with that provision as far as killing the play dead because it doesn't take away possession from the Ignite. They, they still retain possession. So they still kind of have control of their own faith, if you will. Right. Or, you know, they, they can at least control the outcome. Um, again, to your point, it probably means Jason's going to have to signal for another play or what what have you. But, right. you know, that also is kind of part of coaching, I think. Like, you have to have a couple backup plans in play just in, just in case you need them. So, yeah, he may have shown that, you know, we're going to run this play kind of like a quarterback does at the offensive or at the line of scrimmage. Sometimes you got to kill it and go to an audible. I'm not mad at your your take on that. What what it does boil down to is this team has lost seven straight games. You talked about it during your uh, in your recapping your story. Uh, I don't know if you knew this part, obviously, because some things have changed since the game was played on Tuesday. But the Ignite now have the second worst record in the league. I thought they were gonna have the worst. So the fact that they have the second worst, there's a two and fourteen team in there somewhere. Can the Ignite just play them a lot? I don't even know what it is. Let's figure it out. Because they just play Let's them like 40 straight times. And I mean, hell, they played Oklahoma, the Oklahoma City Blue about seven times in the first month. <laughs> I was tired of seeing Oklahoma City. Uh, I'm pretty sure I know everybody on that roster. Um, let's see what the standings are. Because they're, 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 I believe, is it Maine? No, Maine is at the top, no? Motor City. Motor City is 3-10. and I take that back. The Grand Rapids Gold, that's the worst team in the league. They are 2-9 and nine on the year. But, <clears throat> obviously, the Ignite. And, and keep in mind, too, guys, the Ignite, just a couple of, uh, it seems so long ago, but I believe it was f- two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, this team was sitting at 3-4, and four, and they were sec- tied for second, I believe, in uh, the West. So, to see this seven-game losing streak, Let's just talk about the teams that are on top of them. Uh, the Salt Lakes, the Salt Lake City Stars, they're four and nine. The Stockton Kings are five and five and eight. And then you have Santa Cruz and Oklahoma City, both at seven and six. So, uh, a couple of wins for this team could go a long way. Um, but they got to get off of this off of this snide. It's I got to be honest. How do I be honest? I feel like this group. <clears throat> I feel like this group is focused on the, the the bigger picture, obviously, right? That's what Jason Hart as a whole has said that this team is focused on. Um, we've been around those guys. Um, as it typically does, losing begins to weigh on people. I told you last night, this team has to win a game soon. And if they don't, I don't know, man. I think we may have less game result driven stories and a lot of guys already looking ahead for 
what opportunities they may have that that's benefiting them. I know CD Sissoko dealt with some time off uh, due to an injury, due to an ankle, but uh, Leonard Miller obviously has raised his stock a little bit. Uh, Scoot Henderson, I mean, obviously a concussion is a concussion. However, prior to, I don't think anybody had any questions about Scoot. So I think the Ignite, while they're not winning in the winning column, they are winning in a couple of different areas if you understand this to be a development group. <clears throat> Pardon, they're back in action tomorrow, 5 p.m. against the Stockton Kings. I don't know, man. We'll see. 5 p.m. At some point, I don't know how it happens. At some point, this team is going to kick the living shit out of somebody, right? I'm convinced it's going to happen. I don't know when, but I think they are going to, like, maybe not a UNLV Life Pacific situation, but I think we're going to get a 20-plus point victory for this team. We've seen this team go up by 20-plus points several to- several times and end up losing the game. Um, I think one of them is coming. I, I hope hopefully they can end it the right way because this next game is the end of a four game homestand for the Ignite. We'll see, man. <clears throat> we'll see what happens. We have hockey to get to and then we have football to get to and then we'll get out of here. Uh, we'll see if we do a full two hours right now. We're over the hour uh, mark. Let's talk about the Knights getting their first win at home since November 23rd. I had to go back and triple quadruple check that because it didn't seem right but ultimately it did happen and it happened in overtime fashion yeah and a win that they needed um i'll say that much it was a win that vegas was desperate for they were on a three-game home losing streak coming into this one and it they played good enough i will say friday night they didn't play great um but they played good enough to win the game and they played a decent amount, you know, of the grades you could give them, I'd probably say they played, eh, it was like a B-minus game, where there was definitely some areas that they can clean up, but they made just enough plays to, to win the game. And sometimes that's what it comes down to in an 82-game season. Some nights you just need just enough to get over the hump. And I will say the first 11 minutes of that game were a little alarming when you look up and you see they only have one shot on goal in the first 11 minutes of the game. Thought it was quality, that was quality over quantity. They're just they're They better be thankful that Philly only had two at that same time. And so from that point, I will say they started to play the game a little more downhill. They started to play a little more on their front foot and they were generating more chances. Um, Bruce Cassidy had mentioned, uh, you know, the morning of the game that a lot of those are going to have to be, you know, we're going to have to get in front of the net. We're going to have to get rebounds and we're going to have to, you know, make Carter Hart essentially defend or at least, you know, try and save those second chance and third chance opportunities uh, that sometimes come off rebounds. Ironically enough, William Carrier gets his first goal off of a rebound and it he just happens to bounce it in. Um. I know a lot of people are going to probably look at Aiden Hill a little bit differently after this game. How so? Because that's where I wanted to go. Aiden made one really bad play okay. that gave up a goal. 
I was going to say that it for the opposite reason. I was going to say have a day. I, I think and I'll, I'll let you get back to your analysis. I'm sorry. But with his say, you, you, you taught me a little bit more about save percentage averages. Right. And a save percentage of point nine six four. Considering what you just talked about in the first 11 minutes of the game, you said that they were lucky that they only had two to go in the opposite way. But Logan Thompson has had moments where far and few right this year, but he's had moments where you've looked and you've been like, God, he just he doesn't like he have it. He has it right now. With all due respect to Aiden Hill, I think more people have said that about Aiden Hill this season than they have about Logan Thompson in an overtime victory in a one one goal victory. With a save percentage like this, I think nothing but positive should be said. I think what happens is when you talk about the, the lone mistake, we were covering the Knights at the time when Marc-Andre Fleury had one of the biggest blunders in the postseason. I told you, I watched certain people say certain things about Marc-Andre Fleury, and it made me look at him. So what? He's awarded that mistake. So what So what happens now? Because now you guys want to push him out of the building. Ta-da. These mistakes still happen, guys. Yeah. And, you know, um, I felt personally that Aiden played a pretty good game. Um, I even asked Bruce about it, you know. Obviously, the elephant in the room was the fact that he it kind of looked like a Marc-Andre Fleury type play where it was just a bad turnover behind the net and – just got caught in a bad situation. Um, but overall, I thought Aiden Hill made some really big saves down the stretch that kept Vegas in the game. For sure. And uh, Bruce, as, as Bruce typically likes to do, doesn't... I like Bruce a lot, dog. He doesn't um, let the negative be forgotten. Um, he he kind of led open with, yeah, well, he, he had that one play that we didn't really like. But you're right, like, when we was five on five, he was making, making good plays and... Um, Bruce is kind of like that, by the way. Like he, I know Jonathan Marshall won the game in overtime on a breakaway. He's having a year, godly. And and, and Bruce was still like, well, I wasn't sure if Marshy could pull away. I, I didn't think he had that type of speed, but you know he did it, and good for him. And uh, you know, you know, Marshy said something to him the next day at practice. He was like, "Who does that? All right, okay." <laughs> Marshy looking at him like, right. "Who are you calling old? Like, you're not calling me old, are you?" <laughs> oh man! Like, I've been here before, long before you were. Matt, I haven't <laughs> felt this way about a night team in a long time. It seems so unfair to say long time because this team is so young, right? But when's the last time you felt this way about this group? Maybe year two or three. I'm, I'm at year two. And the biggest thing that this team, I, I think you look at it, and they won this game without Alex Petrangelo, one of their right. top defensemen, who is currently sitting out with uh, personal reasons. I believe a family illness is what the team has uh, said it was. So no real timetable as far as when he's back. Jack Eichel did make his return uh, from injury last night. He was listed as the game time decision going in. Uh, obviously took the ice for warm-ups and was good to go. So I think when this team gets Alex Petrangelo back, we're going to stop seeing a lot of moments where Logan Thompson and Aiden Hill get put in vulnerable spots because there were a few even last night where Aiden Hill, I think, had to be in the right position or it was going to be a goal. And 
those were, you know, there was a one instance where I forget who it was for Philadelphia, but they had a breakaway chance. It was it was Aiden Hill versus the the Philadelphia guy that had the puck. I looked at that before it was even shot and thought, oh, this is a goal. Wait, 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 wait. I think I know what you're talking about. I think I know what you're talking Wait, no. You said it was just those two. Yeah. I seen one, and I, I want to say maybe it was Phil Kessel. Um, Maybe it was the second or third period. Uh, I, I watched another breakaway moment, and I'm not going to lie. The, the Whoever the, the flyer skater was, uh, he got Aiden. He, he got around him. And as he was about to shoot, I watched Phil Kessel chuck his stick. And in that moment, like, again, like I said, I didn't watch the first period, but I watched the the, the remaining uh, uh, portions of the game. I watched that, and I wanted to text you in the moment. I, I've covered hockey, so I didn't text you. But I wanted to text you in the moment, and I wanted to say, that might be the game-saving play right there. Because there wouldn't have been an overtime period if that would have went in. So just those moments, right, that I think a lot of people may look at and you go, well, I didn't have I didn't have probably the best position. That was entirely an effort play. When I saw that puck hit the uh, uh, hit the side wall and I saw the stick just gliding on the ice, I was like, whose stick is that? And I'm, I'm pretty sure it was Phil Kessel just gliding. I said, that's the way you endear yourself to fans. That's the way you do it because are we praising him if it still lights the lamp? Probably not. He still should have been. Because the only reason why that would have been a difficult shot is because of that move that was made. And am I right? Was it Phil Kessel? It may have been, yeah. I'm have to go pretty back sure and... it was. Um, but it's one of those moments for me that I watched that, and I it was one of the moments I said Vegas can't lose, right? Well, I, I think I mean that was a great A chance. Like I, like I said, in the moment I looked at that and said, Nah, Philly's gonna score. Right. Like that. That looked like too good of a chance. I think Vegas will look at that and say, Yeah, we had Will Carrier on the doorstep for goal number two. That should have easily gone in, and he just the puck whether whether it was the puck that took a weird bounce or whatever the case may be, just couldn't get it to convert. I'm sorry, I, I was going to ask, that's a, that's a sign of great hockey being played, correct? Where both teams probably should have scored, but you look at the end of the game and it's a 2-1 victory, overtime victory. Yeah, I mean, to a degree, I think that's kind of how Philadelphia wants to play. Um, Bruce had kind of alluded to it before the game, <laughs> and me. I kind of reiter- reiter- reiterated it after the game. Gotcha. That, you know, Philly wants to play kind of tight. They kind of want to. They want to bring everything towards the middle. They don't want to have a lot of open space. They don't want to have a lot of odd man rushes. They kind of want to make you work for everything. You kind of have to be relentless, getting to the front of the net and getting those second chances. Um, you know, essentially, Philly's going to make you earn it. This is random, um, and this is actually going to segue us into the next spot because I haven't watched these two teams play like two, you know, like like together, right? And I haven't done this research, but it just crossed my mind. Uh, do Vegas and Boston play the same? I mean, do Vegas do Philadelphia? Does Philadelphia and, and Boston have a same have the same approach? Relatively speaking, I think uh, maybe Boston wants to get up and down a little bit more, but for the most part, I mean they're they're an East Coast team, so East Coast teams tend to play a little bit closer to the vest, and they don't really 
they're not really into the up and down, you know, open ice type of game that Vegas has been accustomed to. So why is it like that across every sport? The NBA is like that. Like the Knicks of the 90s, right? They're going to grind it out, but the Spurs don't necessarily have that exact same approach. Some of it could be weather related. Some of it could be, you know, it's colder on the eastern East Coast, so you kind of want to play a little bit, you know, closer in. And, um, you know, your, your body doesn't really want to feel like getting up and down too much because of the, the cold weather. Maybe that's one of the attributes. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But um, I do think that Sunday's game is going to be – I mean, if, if Vegas wins that game, that's two wins now over one of the top dogs in the NHL. Then we could probably start having a, a legitimate conversation, particularly if they do this without Alex Petrangelo in the lineup. The conversation could be starting to be had that Vegas may be for real this year. I mean, you you kind of just alluded to it, but on Sunday you will be at the Thomas Thomas at the T-Mobile Arena. That'd be wild. By uh, the way. Do you think do you think it's possible? It probably is. Like they both hold about the same amount of people. I would love to see the nice play at the t- at the TMC for TNM. However, you guys want to abbreviate it, it might be the fullest the t- uh, the TMC's been. Not even close. Yeah, Wouldn't they, they would pack the house. Wouldn't even be close. And, and that's that's saying something because we've seen the top of that house. Sometimes you don't want to pack that house. <laughs> I I had I went to UNLV, guys. Right, Mad and I. You guys know Mad and I went to UNLV. Graduated from UNLV. I have sat at that upper deck once. I'm not doing that no more. <laughs> I'm not. That joint is high, and that, I don't like heights. And that upper deck is exactly how I feel. By the way, about the MGM. Really? Yeah. When you look around, you're like, is that a rat that I just saw? What the? <laughs> Las Vegas Clash today, one thirty, guys. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh man, that's great. Uh, but you talked about it. You'll be at the T-Mobile Arena yeah. Sunday, tomorrow night, five p.m. I'm excited for you. I'm not gonna lie, bro. I think you're gonna see probably the, if not the game of the year, one of the games of the year. I think Boston has something to prove. Obviously, you talked about it earlier. Vegas already has a victory over Boston. However, Boston is tied with New Jersey as the best team in all of hockey. But right behind those two teams, you got the Knights that are sitting at 28-1, and 41 points on the year. They're first in the Pacific. They're two points out, two points out from being tied with uh, New Jersey and Boston for the tops in the league. Less than a week ago, I want to be sure, it was five days ago, when Vegas made the trip to Boston and they came away with a 4-3 victory in a shootout. I, I don't know, man. I am going to ask if we can take a bathroom break because I wanted to do it at an hour and then the conversation just flowed. And then when we come back, we will finish up with just our back-to-back football topics and we will get out of here and get over to the MGM and hopefully you won't see no raps. Yeah, I mean, I'm, yeah, I hope not. One second, guys. We'll be right back. Back in action. Appreciate you for that. Mm-hmm. At least I know I'm hydrated, right? There you go. See, there's one way to tell. Um, we got some football to get to, and then we'll get out of here. We'll start with some collegiate, some collegiate gridiron action. <clears throat> we got a new lead man in Vegas. Yeah. Let me just let me start with this. Let me start with this. 
It's not UNLV's fault entirely, I don't think. Maybe it is. <clears throat> but I am extremely tired of, again, this is not a Barry Odom-specific thing. However, I am extremely tired of every time there is a coaching vacancy. Hell, we heard Rick Patino's name. Last time there was a basketball vacancy. We heard Mike Miller. We heard Mike Bivy. We heard Mike Woodson. Damn, Mad Mikes. Uh, we heard Jason Kidd. And with all due respect, we landed on TJ Otzelberger. Not going to sit here and say that TJ's not a better coach than some of those guys at the collegiate level. What nobody will be able to convince me is that TJ Otzelberger's name is even on the same level as those names that were mentioned <clears throat> respectfully same goes here i was one of those people that said that anybody who's looking for a head coach should call Deion sanders do i think Deion is answering everybody's call no did i think he was answering unlv's hell no nah. but unlv is doing itself a gross disservice by not reaching out i say all of that to say I heard Ed Orgeron's name. I don't know Ed. I don't know anybody that knows Ed. So I didn't I didn't go look it up, but or go dig into it, but I said that'd be great. That'd be great if UNLV could do that, right? If UNLV could pull that. An esteemed and acclaimed college football reporter said he just got off the phone with Ed O. No. He hasn't been reached out to from UNLV. No, he has no interest in UNLV. I didn't know that UNLV picked Tony Sanchez over Ed O in 2011. <laughs> Only this campus, right? Yeah. Man, what the hell is that? If I'm Ed O, bro, I... Oh, the program burns. If I'm at O, I don't care. I'm never coming. You guys can play at, you guys can literally remake the Coliseum and make it like Rome here in Vegas. If I'm at O, I want you guys to drown. You know how arrogant you got to be to say that Ed O was a part of that coaching search? I'm sure he was on the phone, and, we, and we've heard. Ed Orgeron in certain situations, laugh it off. I'm almost positive Ed laughed at that phone. Hell no, nah, they didn't call me. And they bet not call me. Remember what I said Dion should ask for? Imagine what that Ed O ticket is. What have I done since 2011 and you guys hired Tony Sanchez? Ah, national championship. I want 20 a year. You ain't got it? Shit's crazy. Anywho, all of these great names were mentioned. Barry Odom gets the job. Same thing that I just said about TJ Osterberg. I'm not saying that Barry isn't that level of coach, but when we talk about names, this name was not the name you were expecting to see settled on, right? No, to answer that question. It was not the name that I was expecting. And let me say this first. I do hope Barry does well 
for the sake of the program. For sure. I'm going to follow that by saying a congratulations to Eric Harper for setting the program backwards three more years. At least. I've always said it. If you're going to fire a coach, you better be upgrading. Because if you're hiring the same guy or worse, why did you fire to start with? I understand Eric Harper didn't quite like Marcus Arroyo. But Eric Harper just went out and basically hired the equivalents to Marcus Arroyo. Just on a defensive side. And paying, and now they're paying him more than Marcus Arroyo was being paid. And so <clears throat> I have probably the most issues with Eric Harper because of a lot of things he came out and said. When he fired Marcus Arroyo, it, he made it pretty clear that he wanted to bring in a guy that you know, was a championship caliber coach, had, you know, previous experience, all this. He set some pretty high expectations for this next head coach. Yep. I looked at Barry Odom and said, I mean, he he has like a half check mark here, I guess. He didn't really fill a lot of those boxes. And they, a lot of people will point to his time at Missouri and say, oh, well, look at that. He, he got them to a few bowl games. I look at that and say he did that with Missouri that has arguably better resources than UNLV. They play in better conferences than UNLV, whether it would be the Big 12 at the time or even the SEC. They played in better conferences so they can recruit better. And the fact of the matter is is that his overall record was 25-25 and at Missouri. He was a proven mediocre coach at Missouri. If, If we go off based off definition... He didn't really move the needle. He wasn't going to go contend for national championships. He wasn't going to go contend for even for conference championships or maybe even division championships for that matter. He was a middle-of-the-road guy. And it it felt like a very UNLV-like hire. This felt like a guy that they would probably land on given the cycle that they've found themselves repeatedly in through choices that they've made. And... I now look at Eric Harper. I look at him a little bit differently after he hired Barry Odom. I How look so? at I look at him with a little bit of a a head scratch and go, so how much of what you said did you actually mean? Because if we want to go down the list, first off, there were multiple reports that said Ed Orgeron was interested, which are false, according to Ed Orgeron himself. I understand that Dion may not pick up your phone call, but you need to at least make the call to start with. Tell us that you call. Just, uh, <laughs> just let us know. Just poke around and see if Dion would even be remotely interested. You never know; things could happen. He might want to live in Las Vegas. Probably not, but His hey. His name is Neon Dion, bro. Yeah. Whoa, we missed the golden opportunity. Yeah. Oh my God. I'm telling you, bro. See, and this is, and I'm, I'm done with the Dion point after this. I swear. Did you hear? I think you. T- I think you sent it to me. The athletic director uh, from Colorado, when they asked, "Where's the thirty million for Dion's contract coming from?" Oh, they don't have it. He said flat out, "We don't have it yet." <laughs> like, and that's the thing. Like, ah, that's I love realness, bro. We ain't got it. <laughs> we gonna get it though. Like, it's it's great that Colorado got Dion. They got a home run of a hire. Great for them. That part you could have just left to yourself. Bro. It's the truth. <laughs> we ain't got it, bro. But he going to help us get it. That's so funny. God, that was so funny. I wonder how that went over, by the way, in the contract negotiation. 
So Dion probably looked at him like, oh, you got this? He's like, well, Let me wait. explain something to you, Dion. <laughs> that 30, by the time we hit 30, it'll be year five of your contract, right? So that's the way I look at it. Right now, backload that we got deal. your first two years. <laughs> we got the first two right now. Just work with us. You <laughs> get me? Just, just we, we gonna we gonna we gonna meet in the middle by the end of this. I'm telling you, they're gonna put like 85 percent of that deal in the last <laughs> three years of his contract. <laughs> oh my gosh, bro! Ticket prices are probably insane at these Colorado games now. They know what they're doing. Yeah, though. But, uh, but the Barry Odom. Yeah, going uh, back to Barry. You got you got another point. I'm, I want to ask you a question more so about Barry and uh, Hart. <clears throat> Pardon. I, I watched. The introductory press conference, and I, I, my, my ears raised a little bit. Barry Odom was talking about. Uh, he told an anecdote about how he ended up on campus and he found an open door at the Fatita Complex. Right. That's one. He said that when the job became open. He reached out to Eric Harper and said he wanted to be considered for it. That's two. Prior to saying that, he said that him and Eric Harper had been talking all throughout last season. That's three. How many times did Barry Odom <laughs> admit that Eric Harper was talking to him about taking over the head coaching job while Marcus Arroyo was still coaching? That just leads me to having more of an issue with Eric Harper. Because I don't blame Barry Odom for wanting to go to a different job or wanting to be the head coach of a program. That's great. Like that, If it means more money for him, great. I look at Eric Harper and say, if this is true, that this is the guy you had circled from last year, we got a serious problem, bro. Like, to, that means you were keyed in on him, too. To the point to where we may need to reevaluate you even being the athletic department director. Because I know him and Whitfield seem like they have a great relationship, but I think it would have been Keith would have been every he would have been well within his right to look at Eric Harper and go, "Oh, so this is the guy you had circle from last year? You're telling me that this wasn't just a whim?" If UNLV to Eric Harper's admittance and President Whitfield's admittance have said that they want to be at a high-level competition-wise and competing for championships. Three years. Again, this is the guy you decided on that's going to, to their own quote, to their own admittance, this is not going to be a rebuild. So you mean to tell me in two years UNLV is going to be competing with Barry Odom when we had names in the, or you had... Names such as a Troy Taylor that was out there from Sacramento State who's now going to Stanford. You had names out there like, I mean, if you really wanted to throw a wild card out to, to Ed Orgeron and, and explain that it's a new administration at UNLV, we've cleaned house with everybody, we want to start fresh, we want to, you know, amend what, you know, may have went south, you know, later on or previously. I don't, I don't, Dis discount that from. We heard Demarco Murray's name mentioned. We had Demarco Murray, who would have been great for recruiting. They, he has the ties to the Fertitta family. I didn't know he was a Bishop Gorman product. That's why he's got the ties. <laughs> to the I never knew. Yeah, that. he he went to Bishop Gorman, and I mean everybody knows what the Fertittas do for Bishop Gorman, and so one thousand percent. I covered that. I told you guys before. I covered uh for the L.A. Times. Shout out to the L.A. Times. Uh, I covered Bishop Gorman modern day. 
And I text, I think I texted the group as soon as I went to the field. I told you guys it was my first time at Modern Day, and I was like, I get it. <laughs> I understand. I have I've seen community colleges in California look like this. Yeah. And so all that being said. Three years. You got three years, Odom. And this is three years to get it to make a bowl game. That's, like that's, this is it's not three years to have a winning record. Like I mean, it's not three years to show progress. Three years or less, this Eric Harper wants to be in a bowl game. And that's maybe what I have. I I don't have a problem with those expectations because right. you obviously want to be to a bowl game as fast as you possibly can. I have a problem with the fact that if we get to a spot in three years, that Eric Harper is going to fire this guy, and we're going to be in the same cycle where we're not letting coaches coach out the duration of their contract. Mm-hmm. We're always so worried at UNLV about can we buy this guy out or how much is it going to cost to get rid of this guy so we can bring this guy in. And the same cycle continues. It's been that way for a long time with basketball, pretty much since Lon Kruger left the building. And football has been like that for pretty much its entire existence for all we know. I got here in 2017, and this is this is my third head coach. Usually that doesn't happen to rather well-run athletic departments. And – if I'm looking at Harper, I'm looking at Eric Harper saying, "This is your hire. You better give him five. Otherwise, if you're getting rid of him early, you've already told everybody without telling anybody you were wrong." Yeah, and I think that's the biggest thing. I saw Harp at uh, the Dollar Loan Center, and I told him congratulations on his hire, and I made sure to say just that. Similar to because what you just said before, I'm not going to ever throw dirt on Eric Harper's name and be like he told me he didn't like Marcus Arroyo, but. We've gone on record and said that it appears that Eric Harper didn't didn't care for him, and and not to sound like that, but not to not to make it sound like it was just a personal situation. Most general managers, right? I know he's not a general manager, but most general managers, let's say they take over a a, a new Smith's grocery store. Nine times out of ten, they're gonna hire their people. They don't know the people in the building. Like you could be a great worker, and if they don't give you the opportunity to show that, or you don't show it in in that time that they're evaluating. They're going to bring their own people in, and that's just across the board with any company. <clears throat> with Eric Harper being the AD, it appears as if two seasons ago when he was interim, he was a little frustrated. It looked like this season alone, if if Marcus Arroyo was not in the bowl game, he was going to bring his own guy in. So I congratulated him on his hire, but as you just said, this congratulations means nothing if three years from now we're looking for another football head coach. Pardon. He, uh, I did like the fact that Barry Odom said that uh, rebuilds doesn't mean that the team has to struggle. I do like that approach. Uh, there is some rebuilding that has to be done. I like the fact that he said that, I mean, for whatever it's worth, he kind of mirrored what T.J. Otzelberger said, and we know how that went, uh, in terms of re-recruiting the locker room. I thought that was very important. I thought that it was important for him to say that the good, the guys that he met with yesterday, he said it was important that everybody in the room stayed in the room. We know it's not going to happen, but it was important that he said that because everything that you just talked about in terms of uh, building that camaraderie with the high school level and the youth groups here in, in Vegas, youth camps here in Vegas, <clears throat> that his reasoning for saying that was because he said that whatever he's trying to build, 
this is the foundation. The guys that are on the team when he first gets here, because those aren't his guys. But it's going to be, and this is what I don't think a lot of programs or a lot of people come in and talk about with different programs, and I do want to commend Barry Odom for. He let the guys know who are already on this in this group that no matter what he's building, them sticking around allows them to have input in the foundation as well. And what is coming for the foreseeable future, I kind of liken it to what Dan Campbell did with Matt Stafford. I'm not going to ask you to stay, but I do want to know what you would like to see change moving forward. Because we got we can't have another situation like with you, where we haven't produced for you for nine years, whatever the hell it was. I think Barry Odom should be applauded for that, for going to those men saying, I understand you probably don't want to be here anymore, but even if you do leave, you know what I mean? Or if, you, if you're if you entering to the transfer portal, but you don't leave, when you come back, you're a part of building this foundation with me. You're going to have a hand in building some of this, some of this foundation. I think it's important that he said that, and I think it also is important that Doug Brumfield came out and told Steve Cofield, I'm not leaving. And when he was asked why, he said, because Vegas is my home. I'm not leaving. I committed to Tony Sanchez, and by the time I got here, he wasn't here. Who knows what Doug Brumfield is going through? I'm going to mention two names really quick. <clears throat> Noah Williams entered the transfer portal. Uh, again, I can't say that he shouldn't. I can't say that he shouldn't. I mean, you had a hell of a year, was dealing with some injuries. However, we talked about this for a brief moment. Are you shocked that Aiden Robbins has put his name in the in the transfer portal? Given that he did transfer into UNLV, yes, because that does mean now wherever he's going to go. Got to sit. He's got to sit a year, which is going to be tough. <clears throat> I think what makes it even tougher is that it's going to happen. <laughs> I yeah. think that's what makes it even tougher. I beat the Barry Odom's credit. He did get Doug to stay, and that's a big centerpiece you got to work on. And this is where I'm going to sound like a hater. I think I could have been the head coach. Yeah, no, that's that's for sure. I don't think that any of us would have been the head coach. Doug would have been staying. I don't think that's that's good that Barry has him in his back pocket. I don't think it matters. I think Eric Harper could have said, I'm going to be the head coach, and Doug would have been like, I'm with it. Strap up. Doug may have thought about that. Thing. He would have been like, wait a minute. Woo. Okay, hang on. But, that's funny. you know, Barry does now have a, a centerpiece on offense and Doug that he can build around. But he's a defensive coach, so do I even care? You should. If he doesn't pick a right staff, it doesn't matter. I was going to say, if Barry Odom wants to win games, he's going to have to learn how to like offense. You can win. You can play defense until you're blue in the face. If you don't score enough points to beat the other team, it doesn't matter. Especially when you saw what Doug was able to do when he was healthy. Now, all that being said, a lot of the pieces around Doug are in the transfer portal at the moment. Yes. Kyle Williams is in the transfer portal. Yes. Doug's number one target. Aiden Robbins, the I would say one of the sole reasons UNLV had any sort of running game to speak of last year is in the transfer portal. Uh, along with, um, I, can't believe, I can't remember if it's the offensive lineman or a defensive lineman. I know one offensive line, uh, McDaniel, uh, <laughs> turned his intention toward the draft. It's, this team is going to look different, yeah. even even with Barry Odom coming in and saying like we have to re-recruit the locker room. He's going to strike out, not 
maybe not completely, but he's going to have moments where he strikes out. And it's just, I, I think he loses Aiden Robbins. Yeah. I, I think he probably loses Noah Williams. Um, I mean, yeah. It, but when you look at it from that perspective, uh, he does have, as it typically happens, uh, he does have sons. Um, one of which is a 2025 grad, I believe, who plays quarterback. I don't know, man. I don't know. Barry would have to be in what his fourth year of his contract in order to see his son through. Um, I don't know is what I'm going to say. What I will say is him having sons that are actively in high school right now should help the relationship between high schools and UNLV as a whole. That's what I'm probably going to pay closest attention to. I want to see how active and involved Barry is at the high school level. Because um, he said all the right things during the, during the introductory press conference. If you know that local talent is what's going to push this team to the next level, I think the best two things he could have possibly said was starting off by saying, we got to re-recruit this locker room. We're keeping these guys here. And then when we start recruiting, we're starting next door first. And that's just what we're going to do. We're going to go to these high schools next door and uh, build our group from within. Let's see if plain and simple he's a man of his word. I wonder if it's got to be a requirement as a coach that you have to have a son that's playing quarterback. Because <laughs> Dion's bringing your door with him. Hell yeah. <laughs> And he made everybody know about him. He let him out. And I forgot, is it, who is it? I forgot the quarterback. Is it Owens? Is it Owen something? I don't want to say Owen Wilson and it's not his name, but I think his last name is Wilson, so maybe it's not Owen. Um, but you, we saw the moment that, sh that he had the press conference, he was in the transfer portal the next day, and everybody was like, man, he said he brought his son and he was leaving, and he, he just up and left. I would too. If my coach was pointing to his son and being like, "That's your quarterback now," I'm not gonna play here. That's <laughs> right. just not gonna work. Like now, I'm all for competition, right? If you feel like, and I and I'm I'm a competitive person. If I feel like this is his job, regardless, I'm gonna go somewhere where I have a, where I have a spot to compete. Yeah. With all due respect to, I, I could be wrong about that gentleman's name. I hope I'm not. <laughs> but let's just say his name is last name is Wilson. If that's the case with Mr. Wilson. You led a team to one win last year. I think that's how Dion feels. I'm sure Dion like, bro, <laughs> go. I don't care. That's why I'm we, sure Dion like, go. That's why he he was saying in the team meeting, I'm bringing, yeah. I'm bringing my luggage. Oh, yeah, me. my QB1 is coming. I'm telling you on that. <laughs> and some of it's Louie, too. So y'all better get that out of was here. So, honestly, bro, that was one of the best speeches to start the what's it called ever. I loved it. Bro. I looked at that and said, Dion told them in the most polite way possible, y'all suck. I'm just letting y'all know. <laughs> he said, What are you planning on changing? He said, Probably everything. <laughs> he said, What position coaches are you keeping? Probably none of them. <laughs> Hell, I'll coach all the positions if I need to. <laughs> Damn, that was funny. God. Oh, see, I'm going to call. <clears throat> Excuse me. Whew. Damn, that was funny. He said, what are you going to change? Everything. Who are you going to keep? Probably nobody. <laughs> oh, man. Dion the GOAT. Damn. Now we got to talk about the Raiders. Why do you got to do that? Because I wanted to just end the show, and I was like, I'm missing something. It's 20 minutes left. 
Whew. All right, let's talk about my dad's tip in first, because my dad's tip in is gonna perfectly set this up. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> this is random. Doing this texting us about the uh, winter showcase, but all of our credentials are in, so they sent them another invite. I think. Gotcha. I don't know. Maybe it's a photographer invite. I don't know. All right. So my dad's tip in for tonight, or for today rather. <clears throat> I don't know why this is so funny, dog. In the NFL, we've seen so many quarterbacks go out on the field and look like a deer in the headlights, looking like they have no clue. Whether it's a rookie quarterback who isn't ready for the real-time speed of the NFL, or whether it's a veteran in a new system and he hasn't quite grasped it yet. But what we saw Thursday made me rethink all of that. I don't want to laugh. This is going to sound bad. What quarterback have you ever seen get traded on a Tuesday and lead his team to a victory over a hot team on a three-game win streak and also has the league's leading rusher on Thursday. Of course, this wasn't the same Ram team that we, that we saw hoist the trophy in February. And even with the three-game win streak, these are still the Raiders. Regardless of all those previously mentioned, what Baker Mayfield did on Thursday night just proved that when broken down, the game of football is a simple one. Throw, catch, and run the ball even if you don't know the playbook yet. I want to curse. How the hell did Baker Mayfield do it? You know what, in, in all seriousness, I've said it before. I said Baker Mayfield was going to stink in Cleveland. I said Baker Mayfield was going to stink in Carolina. <clears throat> you guys didn't hear me say anything when Baker Mayfield was released because I didn't know if he was going to get another shot. However... The two teams that were mentioned, and I text you guys in the group, San Francisco and Los Angeles. I told you guys the same thing about um, Sam Darnold. I refuse to believe Sam Darnold is a bad quarterback until I see him away from Adam Gase. The issue with Sam Darnold, he went from the New York Jets to the Carolina Panthers. Similar to Baker. I told you, I told all of you guys, if he goes to Frisco... I don't think they do it because Brock Purdy looked pretty damn good. But if he went to Frisco, I told you guys I like that move a lot. He has no weapons in L.A. Van Jefferson is coming off of an injury. Van Jefferson is amazing. When healthy. Do I think Van Jefferson is 100% right now? Hell no. Do I think Baker knew 40% of that playbook? I wouldn't go over 40%. What I saw Baker Mayfield do Thursday, and I wasn't starting with Baker Mayfield per se, but this is where my dad's tip in took me. We have a responsibility in this field when it makes it seem like we hate a guy and we're always harping on him. <clears throat> this is what Baker Mayfield is capable of when he has the right pieces around him. Baker Mayfield, in my humble opinion, was never one of those number one overall picks that, you know who else, you know who else let us down like this? Matt Leinart. I remember Matt Leinart being a first round pick and everybody being like, oh, he's going to come and change the game. Da -da -da -da. And then you saw him and was like, damn, you need Dwayne Jarrett. Damn, you need Reggie. Damn, you need Lindell White. Baker Mayfield needs help. Plain and simple. He's not going to be one of those Aaron Rodgers type guys. 
However, I saw something this morning about the ability to play free. And they said, now I thought it was a valid point. This is the first season, first time at least in two years that Baker Mayfield has been able to play free of expectation. And that's what he did. <clears throat> Pardon. I think it's fake to sit here and say that I became a Baker fan on Thursday because I was never a non-Baker fan. But my commentary makes it sound as if I was a non-Baker fan, similar to with Josh McDaniels. But I think Thursday, Baker showed why people like me wasn't necessarily sure that he wasn't going to get another shot. Baker has something. Do I think Baker is a 15-year starter in this league? Probably not. Do I think Baker is a serviceable quarterback in this league? I do. To that you say what? <clears throat> and then we can get to this terrible game. My first thought was, how the hell do the Raiders do it again? Did you get an answer? No. No. I'm going to read something to you real quick. Let me see if it's still up. <clears throat> I doubt it's still up. Damn. Uh, go ahead and talk about the game really quick. Because I'm going to see if I can pull up this lead from the Athletic and Tashawn Reed. Because I even hit Tashawn personally and was like, this lead is beautiful. Now, the Raiders were up by, was it 16-3 at one point? Yes. With 12 minutes and 20 seconds to go. Where have we seen this before? I want to talk about it. This is also the same Raider team that let a 20-point lead slip away in the second half. They've let multiple 17-point leads slip away. Four 13-plus-point point leads. We all understand, at least from everything that we've been told, that Josh McDaniels is here to stay for a while. That Mark Davis has no plans to move off of Josh right. McDaniel. At a certain point, when does Mark Davis look at the scoreboard and go, when is enough enough? How many times has Josh McDaniels been cursed out this year by um, Mark Davis? <clears throat> Probably after every double-digit loss or double-digit double lead that was blown, as he should be. I'm not mad at that. Because at the end of the day, people may say, well, sometimes the other team just plays harder. Yeah, that could be. That's a problem if it happens on a consistent basis. One, once or twice is one thing. <clears throat> Josh, you've let it happen at least five times this year. And a lot of those losses were games you were leading in, which is even more alarming. Tashawn Reed posted this to The Athletic as part of his story. And as I said before, he posted it to his story on Instagram. And I had to reach out, and I even told him, I was like, bro, this is a beautiful lead. Now, <clears throat> in this field, um, sometimes I haven't even asked him either. Sometimes in this field, <clears throat> Matt, you know it. Um, you cover a sport, you write stories, you do all these different things. You may have a favorite story. You may, the interesting thing is guys, your favorite story may have different elements. Like it may be your favorite story because of, one of my favorite stories ever is about Jesus Lusardo because mainly of how raw he was with me and how honest he was with me. Um, <clears throat> I don't think that's my favorite like written story by me. Um, but I say all of that to say, 
even those two situations that I just gave you guys right now, your favorite story, your favorite angle, whatever the case may be, sometimes that all differs if you have a favorite lead. And I thought this lead by Tashawn Reed was just, I, I literally told, I said, I said, this is a chef's kiss. <clears throat> and this, it reads as follows. This is the sort of incomprehensible, humiliating, shameful loss that the Raiders seem to be past the point of being capable of. After a debilitating 2-7 start that drew concerns about a fractured locker room and a head coach on the hot seat, they'd won three in a row, all one-score games, to put themselves back in a playoff hunt. Now, all that's out the window. I hit Tashawn and said, damn it, that was beautiful. We talk all the time about that first six to seven grabs being a snapshot. Tashawn did it all in about three sentences. We thought you guys were past this point. This is what you guys were coming off of doing. And despite what you guys just came off of doing, this one loss could have just could have just erased it all. I didn't read the rest of Tashawn's story. I didn't have to. Ta-da. There's a story. I don't know what else you guys need to hear. Matt just talked about it right now. The Raiders were up 16-3 with 12 minutes and 20 seconds to go in regulation. And you know what's interesting? <clears throat> I watched the punt, right? The, the, AJ, the AJ Cole punt, which is an amazing punt. Uh, 64 yards, gets down at the two. I said it in the moment. I hope the person who was around can, can vouch for me. I looked at the person. I said, the Raiders are about to smoke it. She was like, no, they're not. I said, I'm telling you something. I'm telling you something. I said, the Raiders haven't made me feel good since the second quarter. The Raiders are about to smoke this. Ta-da. Penalty after penalty after penalty. When I saw Matt line, or Max line up in a neutral zone, I said, yep, it's happening. It's happening. I said, this is one of those moments right now where I'm literally the dog in the meme and the whole living room is on fire. And I'm sitting here like, Nope, this is okay. This is fine. This is fine. The moment I saw Max line up in a neutral zone, I said, up, oh, this is shit. This is shit. This is going to hell. <laughs> By the way, guys, Baker Mayfield is the first quarterback in NFL history to lead his team back from 13-plus point deficits in his team debut. He did it with the Browns, and he did it with the Rams. Ta-da. So we think we talking about Baker being better than Derek? I didn't want to say it, but I was going to ask, do you think the Raiders contemplate bringing Baker in next season? I think after this game, they kind of look at Baker a certain way, and they go, hmm, our guy hasn't been able to do that for a while. This is what I will say. <clears throat> Baker Mayfield has a golden opportunity the rest of the season because the Rams think. If he get, and I'm from LA, I'm telling you guys something. If Baker Mayfield is able to make those Ram fans care for the remainder of this season, they're not going to the postseason. But if he's able to make the Rams care. Baker will not only forever be loved in those parts of California, 
Baker's going to find himself a starting job next season. I don't know where. How do I know that Robert Sala isn't saying that Baker could do it out here? The only time Baker has had positive things in his career, postseason runs, was with a stingy defense. What happens if Robert Sala said, if you're going to have that attitude, Zach, and not produce, I'd rather have somebody like Baker. Well, we know the Jets are moving off of Zach Wilson. It looks like it, right? Yeah. It doesn't look, it doesn't look like that shit is repairable at all. I think I think Zach – I think some people want to put some hands on Zach. Whether about, it happened, I don't know. I was about to say some people's moms too probably, but <laughs> that's a fact. <laughs> but that's for a different reason. It's probably him wanting to put his hand. Never mind. Y- yeah, no. <clears throat> yeah. There you go. That's what Zach can go do. Go join the the Raiders. Are, <laughs> the Raiders have no shot at 10 wins this year. The Raiders probably have no shot at the playoffs this year. Nope. One more loss and it's guaranteed to done. Um, I don't know if this I, – I think I'm at the – by the way, this is their first loss since you've asked me what they win a game the remainder of the year. I say that to say this one loss feels weighted differently. And I don't know what I'm going to see the rest of the season. This New England game on Sunday, 105 p.m. Next Sunday, I should say, 105 p.m. has been flexed out of Sunday Night Football. I think a lot of people are expecting Bill Belichick to not only coach circles around Josh McDaniels. I think the Patriots are going to come in here so focused. I think we might see some records broken. Not even like offensive records. I think it'd be something weird, bro. I think the Patriots are going to come in and like have no negative yards. No negative yardage plays. Or they're going to go like the full game with no penalties. Like it's going to be something that is going to be like, yeah. There's something that New England has in terms of discipline that Vegas doesn't. And I think it's going to show a lot. On Sunday, next Sunday, I should say. Remember that one at one point when we looked at each other and we said, "Yeah, no, five wins is probably about it." Their ne- their next four are the Patriots at the Steelers, and then home for the Forty ers and the Chiefs. I don't like those last two, and I've said that earlier. I like I like Pittsburgh. I do only because I like what's it called? Um, uh, history being on their side. By it being the the anniversary of Franco Harris catch. I just feel like I I feel like the Raiders are going to come in there and 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 suck the air out of the building. That might be their last win of the season, though. That's counting on Derek Carr to play well against that Pittsburgh defense in the cold. Yeah. When you got T.J. Watt flying at you and make a. Sitting around in the secondary. You know what's so interesting, and I'm and I this is now I'm getting off of this. Minka Fitzpatrick pissed me off so bad last night on Madden. It threw me through a, <laughs> it threw me through a loop, bro. It pissed me off beyond belief. The ball. Minka had Minka had one pick all year. We're in week ten. The Ravens threw two picks to Minka. 
and it drove me up a wall, bro. I was like, there's no way in here. The first thing, the first pick was it was it was a bad throw by Lamar. Lamar ends up getting hurt. Snoop ends up throwing a pick. Now Tyler Huntley uh, is Snoop, by the way. Snoop throws a pick, but he throws it to Mark <laughs> to Mark Andrews. He catches it. He gets hit two different ways, so the ball pops out. Mika, it lands in Mika's lap. I almost chucked my TV. Because I said those are the type of plays that great ones, they, it falls in their lap. And it's like, how the hell? Now, you ain't you ain't been able to get two picks through the first nine weeks, and now you get two. And it was just one of those moments to where you just talked about it right now with Derek Carr going to New England, I mean, going to uh, Pittsburgh. I said what I said. I expect the Raiders to, I shouldn't say expect, right? I, ah, I'll go there. I expect the Raiders to win that game. If the Raiders don't, I could absolutely see Minka Fitzpatrick having two interceptions, T.J. Watt having two sacks, the Raiders looking flustered on offense, scoring 13 points. I could see that. Not to mention the coaching mismatch. I don't want to talk about that. Like Tomlin versus Josh McDaniels. We can get out of here if you want to. I don't I don't want to talk about that. I don't. If you want to do it, you do that by yourself. I don't want to. Now Look at the coaches that Josh McDaniels has the rest of the way. Bill Belichick, Mike Tomlin, Kyle Shanahan, Shanahan, and Andy. Oh, my God. Yeah, he may not win another game. Five might be it. Those are severe mismatches. <laughs> hey, man. <laughs> Matt, you, you're going to have to check your email because during this show, we were sent the general information for where we're headed next. We're about to head to the MGM Grand Garden Arena where I expect, I feel like this expect we're about to get me in trouble, but I expect for UNLV to improve to 10-0. I do. I expect FAA Boogity to not have some pleasant words for me, but um, I'm going to let him hear it. <laughs> I'm going to let him hear it if it happens. Trust me when I tell you. Uh, but again, guys, um, by the way, and I'm going to, let me, let me, let me cue this music because I'm about to say something that y'all going to be mad at. All right. So I understand that this team isn't winning right now. It needs to be said, as much as the Las Vegas, or excuse me, the UNLV running Rebels are doing what they're doing here in the early part of this season, not enough attention is being paid to the G League Ignite. Plain and simple. I watched F.A. Boogity sitting amongst general ticket holders during UNLV's game against Hawaii. I don't know anything, and I'm going to say a team right now because I'm just throwing something at a wall seeing if it sticks. If F.A. Boogity is in Sacramento next year, I don't want you guys to have to realize the fact that F.A. Boogity has spent the whole season with the G League Ignite in you guys' backyard, and you guys have failed to build a report with him. Scoot Henderson is expected to be the number two overall pick. Dealing with the concussion. Hasn't played in over a week. Almost two weeks at this point. Leonard Miller is showing why he should be a lottery pick. Eric Mika has five years of experience. Professional experience. He's the anchor 
that is charged with roughing FA up during practice. These are the guys that are sitting right under. Mojave King is one of the best shooters I've seen. Ever. The repetition that Mojave works with is insane. Cameron Young is somebody who I went to high school with. Scored 55 points as a Division I player with Quinnipiac. These are the guys that are in your backyard. And I think you should start paying more attention to them. Until next time, guys. Keep on talking.